Welcome back to Waco, American Apocalypse. This is the Netflix podcast companion series, and this is episode three, The Toll It Took. With me again today is Lee Hancock, a prominent interview subject in the series, and perhaps the premier chronicler of the Waco story. One of the things in, that I feel as a filmmaker telling historical stories is we as storytellers function as sort of a digestive organ for the culture as a whole. These powerful, potent, shocking stories happen in real time, and it's not until you have a little bit of distance and perspective from them that uh, it's possible culturally to understand, you know, what happened and, and what was the import and why and what was that human experience. So in this episode, um, what we'd like to do is discuss the lasting impact that this story had on the people who lived it. As a filmmaker, I feel like there is this kind of secondhand processing of trauma that I'm often engaged with, which is one's hearing the stories of people who have lived through, you know, an intense traumatic experience and what you're asking them to do when making a series like this is in some way to go back in and emotionally connect with what that trauma was. And so it's always um, a tightrope walk. On the one hand, you want people to express some of the most devastating moments of their lives and be able to in some way relive them um, verbally by conjuring the memories of what happened and yet at the same time um, one has to be very careful that you're not re-traumatizing people by asking them to, to explore these things and so hopefully people are able to unburden themselves from them and to share what they were with lots of other people and Lee I'm curious your experience of this trauma is, is, is much closer than mine and much more direct and you went racing out of, of Dallas, you know, the moment you hear about this happening and speeding to Waco, you know, how traumatic was this? And as a journalist, how do you kind of park the emotional impact of what's happening to you at the time on the side so that you can chronicle it and share it with the world? Well, like a lot of journalists who were there, you know, I was on deadline. And, you know, you focus on the story at hand. You focus on trying to figure out what happened, who was involved and why. And, you know, in the case of Waco, you know, this went on for 51 days. And so there's a very intense focus at the time on what was happening. And it's only in some ways it's only on stepping back that you begin to have to digest all of this stuff, all of these stories that you have heard. Meaning with the, with, with the passage of time? Are with you the referring to yeah. That? I mean, and, and, you know, it, during the 51 days, the focus is on, you know, you have a deadline every day and you're trying to get information from people who don't want to give it to you. Um, from the feds, from local authorities, and certainly there was no way to get to the Davidians after the first few hours of the siege. So there's a combination of the adrenaline rush of a daily story and a crisis story. There is also the intellectual problem of trying to figure out how to explain 
this group that had a, you know, a very esoteric belief system and, you know, do it on deadline and also show up for we used to call them the morning follies where Bob Ricks and other FBI agents would try to tell us what they wanted to tell us. We also had to deal with the problem of, you know, we were being used as the media as an element of the FBI's negotiations with this group. They were very clear that they were talking to the Davidians through these news conferences. So it's this multi-level story that you're having to contend with. And it was only afterwards that I began and others I know began to digest. And, you know, there's some people I know that still have an emotional hangover from it. From the very jump, there is this weird, conflicted role of the media Mm -hmm. in this story. John McElmore, the KWTX reporter who appears in, you know, an interview in the series, had a very complex relationship with this story, which is... It's very rare in law enforcement to have this real-time coverage of a story that where the media is there. I mean, you know, here they are showing up to do this sort of massive tactical raid, and there's TV cameras that are there capturing this in real time. It's unprecedented. It's not, this not has never controlled. happened before. So let's talk about John McElmore a little bit and the aftermath of the story, which is something that was a very powerful piece of the story, which ended up not really fitting in the series as it's constructed, trying to get a 30,000-foot view. But John McElmore has never really come forward and told his story in any exhaustive and, and definitive way prior to this. And I think this story was very traumatizing for him. When he did this... John McLemore is a kid. He's out of the University of Texas. He's a comer in television journalism. You know, he had done well enough to get uh, an internship in Dallas at the premier station in Dallas. He had worked his way up, you know, basically making really low wages, but worked his way up in television to where he was doing important stories, statewide stories in Waco. He had just come off a big capital murder trial down in Houston, and he comes back And he doesn't really know this thing is going to go on, but gets pulled into the story because, again, you know, he's one of their hot young journalists and he's available. And he's a guy who thought when he got into this that if he did everything right, he was going to end up on a network. And if everything had gone his way and not gone so horribly wrong in this in this crisis, he would have ended up. So, I mean, he's kind of this beautiful point. So he ends up getting thrown into a gunfight and and is asked not only to cover it, but help save lives. The scoop he had, you know, always dreamed of having, this is, as you said, going to put him on the map and going to make him a, a star. The allegation that sort of nets out that Macklemore is is falsely painted with is that he tipped off the Branch right. Davidians deliberately, and what that resulted in was the Davidians being aware of this impending raid, being able to set up and go and get their guns, and essentially ambush the ATF. That's the implications of the allegations that are leveled against John Macklemore. Is that correct? That's correct. And when it came out on ABC's Nightline, Immediately, his station reacted, and so they basically exiled John. So he went from being on a rocket to, you know, being an absolute Started. pariah. And, and also being suspected of causing this whole tragedy. 
And 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 it's important to add that this 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 journey that John McElmore went through, this literally happened within days. One moment he is the star on-camera reporter who is breaking this story, getting shot at in real time. And, you know, within 24, 48 hours, suddenly he is being blamed for, for being the person who set the match so that he would have the scoop of a lifetime. Another important thing to throw into the mix is you had, from the very beginning, the media being scrutinized and some of the feds saying, okay, the media was at fault here. They were doing something wrong. You had thousands of reporters and journalists who descended on Waco, each trying to get a scrap or a snippet of a scoop. So you a very competitive situation. The media is feeling somewhat under scrutiny and maybe even attack. And so... John was in the middle of this maelstrom. I asked John to tell me about what it was like for him after his initial reporting exploded onto television screens across the country. And this is what he said. So the very next day after the the shootout, I'm inundated with phone calls, you know, here, we need you, CNN wants to do a live shot with you. So I do a, a live shot with, uh, I think it was Tony Clark, he was a big CNN reporter, did that. And then, good morning America, good morning Australia, good, you know, uh, something for the BBC. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, wow, all right, John, you finally, finally made it in this business. Dan Rather comes down, you know. Son, you did a great job, blah, 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 blah. You're on your way. Talk about that moment. Like, Dan Rather, this guy's a fucking icon, oh, right? I mean, this yeah. like, so, and like, take me into that moment when you finally actually see Dan Rather. Yeah. And- Dan Rather, he, he actually came to, came to Waco, drove out to where I, I was and where Dan Maloney, the photographer, where we were stationed with the CBS crew. And he comes out and, you know, this guy is uh, a god in the news world, you know, television news world at the time. And telling me, you know, what a great job I did and what a great job I've done in the past and how my future's so bright. And and it was just amazing, you know? It's like if I was a singer and Mick Jagger came up to me and said, hey, you know, kid, love you, you're, you're doing great. So, wow, okay. And, and I thought, wow, all this hard work, everything I've always worked for, that $13,000 a year living in Temple, Texas, the skipping spring breaks, working for free, you know, staying at from 11 at night till 2 in the morning at a television station, teaching yourself how to edit videotape. All of a sudden, it, it's all worth it. It's, it's going to happen. Your dream's about to come true. And then it comes crashing down 24 hours later for something out of your control, something you didn't even do. So what's the next sort of significant piece for you when you kind of replay that day in your mind from the triage? Like, what's the next, what's the next moment you remember? It's actually about, I don't know, 24 hours later when I was asleep and somebody woke me up late at night because we were camped out there then. And um, somebody told me that um, a Houston Chronicle 
reporter was on Nightline with Ted Koppel, which was a late night news program. And she told the world that her sources told her that the young television reporter, me, at the scene was the one that tipped off the Davidians. And of course I had thought, it's ridiculous. Nobody would say that. And apparently she did. And I started, you know, trying to focus, think, okay, well, wait a minute, that, that's ridiculous. And how is this, you know, that's not even a story. What's, it just was, I couldn't hardly comprehend it. And then all of a sudden, for the next 12 hours, the station that I worked for was just inundated with people wanting, other television stations wanting to interview me, asking me why I tipped off the Davidians to the raid. And my station wouldn't let me confirm or deny or anything. They just pulled me off the story and implanted me into a uh, CBS News crew a few miles away, and I just couldn't say anything about it. I, mean, I got letters pouring into the, the station saying, the blood of the dead agents are on my hands. My wife, she works at a bank. She's the uh, receptionist, the main person they see when, you know, beautiful woman, Mrs. Wa uh, Mrs. Waco. And people come in and tell her, you should be ashamed of your husband. So, yeah, that, that cost me my career in television, which I had worked for my whole life, and it cost me a marriage. But uh, that's all I could think of back then, too, is it cost me a career, cost me a marriage. That's me. This is way bigger story than just me. This story has so much, and I wish I was older then, you know, I was so young and naive and didn't really understand the magnitude of it. All I could think about is how I got hurt, how I was robbed. This story is way bigger than that. I remember when I first approached John McElmore about telling his story, he was extremely gun-shy, and I had to fly down to South Texas and sit with him in person, and I explained to him, um, I understand why you would be reluctant to tell this story. You went chasing the story of a lifetime, and you got you know, burned and destroyed by it wrongly out of false accusations. And that's why, you know, my goal as a filmmaker with, you know, some distance and some hindsight is to inject you into the story, to allow you to tell what happened to you in your own words so that you can share that with the world and, and hear what it was like to capture that in real time. And so it's important, I think, for us to then articulate and honor what happened to John subsequently and thank him for his bravery in reporting the story and his bravery 30 years later in coming forward and sharing his experience of what happened to him. All right, so next we'd like to explore the lasting impact of survivor's trauma and 
for me, as a filmmaker, one of the things that I was struck by, and, and one of the reasons why I wanted to have both David Thibodeau and his mother, Belinda Gainham, on, uh, included as interviews in the series, is when a tragedy happens, be it the tragedy of the murders that happened in Night Stalker in Los Angeles in 1985, or the deaths of all of you know the Branch Davidians and, and federal agents who died in the course of this Waco story, what happens is there's this very dehumanizing aspect to victimhood where people become reduced to nothing more than a statistic, which is name, age, date of birth, date of death. And it, it, it's sort of all of the humanity of who these people were and what they suffered ends up becoming, you know, a footnote in the rampage of, you know, somebody who changed the world for generally for the worse, whether it's Richard Ramirez and Night Stalker, whether it's, you know, David Koresh and the story. And so I think it's important to give back the humanity of people who, who, uh, and to, to acknowledge the humanity of the people who died. And one of the ways of doing that is to explore the stories of those who survived. So here's David Thibodeau talking about um, what it was like in the aftermath, not only to have lived through it, but to have lived through it when so many of the people he knew died. There's times in the last 28 years where periods of time go by and I'm driving, or I have a dead-end job, or I'm playing in a band, I'm making money on the weekends, and that's my only income, very frugally, for a long time. And there's times where, you know, it's Friday, Saturday night, you get done playing, Sunday you're all sore, and you're, you know, waking up trying to, trying to recover from playing all weekend, and you don't think about things, you know, life goes on, right? Time goes on, you're reading a book, you're talking to friends, you're seeing a movie, you know, whatever. Then you turn the TV on and there's the building burning. And you stop and you go, whoa, that really happened and I was there and it wasn't just a bad dream. Much of my life, Waco has just seemed like a bad dream and I think, I think that's how you can compartmentalize it and live with it. This is extremely hard to live with the voices of those people that have been silenced. And the reason that I even talk about it, I went 10 years of not talking about it even because it was so, it, it got to be so emotionally taxing. And then weird things started to happen. Like I just had a very short fuse. I became this asshole that I didn't like. And I had to deal with this shit that was just, that was just there. You know, I just, I would drive people away I didn't know how to handle, I didn't know, I couldn't handle, I couldn't handle. And it's been really hard for the people that love me. It's hard, it's just hard, it's really, <clears throat> I don't want that in my life. I wanna be able to, you know, have a normal life just whatever, and I, and I attempted, I did that, I, I did, I had a normal life for years. But it comes back to these voices, and I started, you know, there was a 
period of time I went to the memorials every year that I couldn't afford to get there, so I didn't go. It was before Zoom, before all that. So I didn't go for like 10 years. And now, <clears throat> now every year I, f I see everyone. In other words, I've been good at blocking up, but now when I do the memorials, there's Winston Blake, and I say, this is Winston Blake, and he died at Mount Carmel. Here's Zilla Henry. She died at Mount Carmel, and this is who she was. Here's um, Jennifer Andrade. Here's Jennifer's sister. Here's Catherine Madison, who died after the siege. She died of old age. She died, you know, several years ago. And I get to see each person and tell their story a little bit, and it's been incredibly powerful because now I can't block it out anymore. They're, you know, they're with me all the time now, and it's... It's a good thing. It's needed. Listen, they can't talk. I have to tell their story, and I'm not a great storyteller. You know, I can describe them individually, but having to do the memorials, they're there. They're all they're there. You know, every 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 year, and it stays with me. And it's a we do it on Zoom now. It's a powerful experience. I'm. Why do you have to tell their stories? I'm honored to be able to do it. Clive's getting too old, so I'm, I've been doing it now, and I, I was really scared. I was scared to, to represent them, because I am not worthy of these people. But that's, that's it. I have to tell their stories, because I, 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 I lived, and they didn't. And, you know, I didn't want to tell this story, these stories. I did it early on, and then after the anger thing, I, I didn't want to do it anymore. But then it doesn't go away. Waco keeps coming back. You know, it's like they did the, the, they did the series. No one cared about my book, man. I wrote a book because I was pissed off. I wrote my book out of frustration. <clears throat> People think, oh, Thibodeau's making all this money off his dead friends. I didn't write a book to make money. I wrote a book because nobody got it, dude, because everyone was just like, these people deserved what they got. These people did not deserve what they got. And every aspect, they were fucking railroaded, and no one gave a shit. You know, the, the people that cared, they couldn't do anything about it. But you weren't supposed to give a shit. That's, listen, I'm not blaming the viewers. I'm not blaming the people who witnessed this thing through the press. You guys didn't know because you weren't allowed to know. The FBI controlled the press. They controlled everything. The press did their job as they always do. The press protect the system. The system's gonna protect itself no matter what happens. The system protects itself. That's one thing that I've learned, whether it's the judge not allowing certain expert witnesses to testify at your civil case or whether it's being demonized, or whether it's evidence being lost, whatever it is, the system's gonna protect itself. And they will come up with laws, behind laws, that you didn't even know exist to show you as being this bad, terrible individual, this cultist, whatever. And it's, the truth is so much deeper. It's, there's so much more involved. These are individual people that love God. That Number one, they all love God. They put God before their own lives. That's true.
One of the struggles that I and other journalists have had with this story, and particularly with understanding the Davidians, is uh, in the aftermath, you know, the Davidians understandably were not eager to tell all of what they knew about their group. Some of this was very esoteric and secretive. And so it took time for them to acknowledge many of the things that were put out about the group, you know, Koresh having multiple wives, Koresh betting underage kids. Um, Also, they had a steady diet during the siege of the FBI characterizing them. Um, in ways that made them feel like they were being portrayed as, um, you know, blindly following cultists. They hated the term cult. And so to come out of that, you know, particularly in this trauma that they experienced, I can't imagine what it would have been like to go through all of that and then also come out of the fire as one of the few survivors and then be asked, okay, why did you believe this? What did you do? And what about all these things that they were saying about this group? So for many of them, it took years. Uh, And Thibodeau certainly will say it took years to be able to talk, you know, fully about what what he had experienced and, you know, to digest it himself to be able to tell the story. You bring up a really great point, Lee, which is I think that there's a couple of complicated things. One, there is all of the branding that happens in the moment where, you know, for somebody like David Thibodeau, it's you are a cult member, you are a fringe, you are a, you know, a lunatic, you are a weirdo, whatever all those judgments that are passed in the moment by the media portrayal, by the FBI portrayal. And and so there's that, I think, you know, inherent inherent resistance to exposing yourself and, and, and the f- sort of vulnerability that's required to articulate, okay, who am I? How did I end up here? What did I believe? And then I think the other important point that you're making, which is particularly true I have found in documentary filmmaking, is the passage of time is really necessary to get at the heart of something. The passage of 30 years since this has happened has enabled people, one, to avoid, you know, statute of limitations and criminal prosecutions so that they're able to speak freely and not worried about, you know, ending up in the joint. And also just to have a little bit of emotional and intellectual distance from this is who I was at the time, this is who I am now, and I can share, you know, those different vantage points to illuminate it. And so, again, another opportunity, I think, to thank all of the people that came forward and and you, you know, high among them, Lee, of, hey, this was a defining experience of my life. And it's it was an important experience. And let me tell you what it was like. So I feel like a debt of gratitude to everyone who put those stories in our hands as filmmakers and gave us the chance to hopefully author a portrait of this that's indicative of the human experience of it. Thank you for joining us today. In our next episode, we'll explore the legacy of Waco. Because I think the question remains for all of us. 30 years after this tragic American story riveted the world, why are we still talking about it, telling the stories, wrestling with what it means to who we are and how we live? In our next episode, we'll speak with Bob Ricks, 
the man who became the face of the FBI during the 51-day siege, and who subsequently was targeted by Timothy McVeigh in the Oklahoma City bombing. We'll turn to Bob to understand the legacy of Waco. Waco, American Apocalypse is a production of Netflix, Original Productions, and Tillerman Films. Producer is Jacob Miller. Executive producers are Tiller Russell, Brian Lovett, Jeff Hassler, and Jennifer Dugan. Edited by James Carroll. Special thanks to Lee Hancock. 